Hello, hello, everyone. Rafinha from 1G Connection here. We are starting a new episode of 1GC. And today we have Manny Alfonso with us. He lives in Israel. He's from Dominican Republic. And it's very good to have him in the show. Manny, welcome to 1G Connection. Thank you, Rafael. It's good to join you. Man, I appreciate that you are joining me today. So for those who don't know Manny, he, is, uh, he works as he's a global manager in rock content, a global content marketing technology company. He knows a lot about technology, tech content marketing, web experiences. I met him in my current work. He's one of the most collaborative persons that I know. He also knows a lot about web experiences and technology. And he's living in Israel and he passed some moments that was really curious to know about. For example, the conflicts in Hamas, also the vaccinations that went pretty fast. And one thing that is pretty interesting about him, he plays piano as an expert. And I'm really, I'm curious to know how he got to that level. So I'm sure that you have a great conversation. So remember to subscribe to our podcast channel and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Many. I would like to start the conversation asking you to present yourself and also present the drink that you brought to the show today. Great. Thank you, uh, Faria, for uh, giving me the floor here. Uh, basically, my name is Emmanuel Benavides Alfonso Baez, but you can call me Manny Alfonso. Two really easy, uh, short ways to call me. Uh, my nickname is Manny. It's been um, actually since I started visually in 2013. I said, and Manuel is a little too long. Let me just become Manny. And uh, <laughs> everyone can just say two syllables, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of um, where you know, the nickname came from. Um, I currently reside in Jerusalem, Israel. And uh, as uh, Rafael, Rafael said, I am a global category manager for web experiences for a marketing tech company called Rock Content. So really uh, excited to be here today. And in terms of uh, drinks, I brought a beer called uh, Left, pretty famous beer. This is what I'm drinking right now. Oh, this is a good one, man. This is a good one. Very famous around the world. I think we do have this one in Brazil as well. Oh, really? That's, that's really interesting. Um, I, I love it. It's, um, it's really uh, strong and uh, I feel like a lot of background taste to it. And I, and I really enjoy it. The next that's one that I brought to the show, and I don't, I don't think I'm going to drink it today. It's called Malka, uh, as you can see the Hebrew here. Yeah, I cannot read that, but <laughs> if you can explain, that's cool. Yeah. Okay, and I brought my shakimachi. That's a typical, uh, not a beer, it's a drink of room and machi. Machi is, typ is, a, is used normal for teas. You see a lot of teas of machi, but they did the mix between room and machi, and the taste is just amazing. I love it. Oh, wow. So this is a kind of like how much a percent alcohol does it have? I can check here. I think it's 8%, but you need to be very careful because uh, it's sweet. So you drink like doesn't taste alcohol. So you drink too much. And when you see you are drunk, so I need to be careful. I won't get high in the show, guys. Don't don't worry with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the problem. The, the sweet drinks are the dangerous ones, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. We need to be careful. And Manny, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your career. What do you do? Uh, I, you are also a piano musician. Tell us a little bit about your career, what you studied. So uh, my career basically took a big U-turn uh, somewhere around 2013. Um, and I started off as a civil engineer. This was my degree. I did a bachelor's in science in civil engineering and um, finished my degree in around 2011, no, 2010. A year later, I moved to Israel. You know, we can get into that, uh, you know, story later on for sure. But moved to Israel, I changed my scene in completely because I realized oh, I'm in a different country where I do not know the mother tongue language. And this was a, a bit difficult. So I was looking for other things, uh, things where I can uh, expand and grow professionally while I, you know, captured the, the Hebrew language. And um, eventually I came across a company called Visually in 2013. And they uh, are, were content producers at the time. We went through two acquisitions by Scribble Live and then Rock Content. Uh, and basically I've stayed in that train since. That's cool. What made you move to Israel? Israel basically was um, a, it's a love story. So I'm going <laughs> to go be a little straight about this one, straight up about this one. Uh, I met my wife on a video game in uh, 2009. Oh, that's awesome, yeah. man. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's, um, it's not your typical story, though. I think today, maybe it's 10 years, 15 years ago, this trend maybe started to increase. Um, but... I met her on a video game, spoke to her on Skype after, for two and a half years. But there was something about the first conversation we had on Messenger that clicked. Like we were talking for hours, uh, talking about very topics that we liked and we uh, enjoyed. Um, after that, it just developed into a conversational level type of relationship for two and a half years. I was studying civil engineering in the Dominican Republic. And, um, but eventually we got to a point where like we have to meet. Uh, and, you know, it went on from there, uh, after we spoke about meeting and we eventually knew like we're probably going to meet and uh, stay a longer time because we really liked speaking to each other. And that's when, um, you know, we got a ticket. I got on a plane and I flew to a Tel Aviv Ben Gurion airport and I met my current wife for the first time at the airport there. Whoa. That's an amazing story. I mean, that's the first time I heard that. You met your wife playing games and she was from a total different part of the world. Yes, what, yes. What was I, the game, I, by the way? I'm curious to know about this, uh, this game. I mean, if you are looking for a wife, I think that this game can be a good <laughs> choice for many people that is uh, hearing 1G today. <laughs> well, hopefully there are other games that do the same thing because this game is dead. It doesn't exist anymore online. Oh. It's called, yeah, it's called SOCOM US Navy SEALs. And um, I think they took it down in like 2014 or something. I don't even remember anymore. Was it a strategic game? It's almost like a military shooter, right? And uh, you would have a team of eight versus eight kind of sh duel it out in a map. They would shoot each other and uh, whoever just w beats the other team wins. Okay. Yeah, it seems the kind of game I would play. I like these kind of games. And, yeah, and many. Uh, you are from Dominican Republic, and, and then you moved to Israel. I'd like to ask you, how was? I mean, what are the 
first impressions, the first difference you've seen comparing Dominican Republic to Israel? I think um, one of the first things that shocked me uh, when I was on the airplane was just the vast amount of organized lights there were on the highway. Something that, you know, you would rarely see in my, in my home country of the Dominican Republic. Maybe I think that's improved over the past few years. Uh, but back then, the highways were, were dark, especially the main highway from Bani to Santo Domingo, which is uh, where my mother was born and where I lived in Bani um, for some time. And that struck me right away. So I saw, okay, there are a lot of lights on the road, uh, definitely an organized country. Uh, the other thing that shocked me immediately was the paint on the sidewalks to mark uh, whether cars are, could park or not. You know, if it's blue and white, they can park with paying a toll. If it's red and white, you can't park there at all. You get a ticket. So a lot of interesting things um, came to mind when I started like analyzing Israel for the first time. Yeah, we would say Israel is a well-organized country in this kind of thing. I believe so. Um, I believe um, the first impressions that I got in the first few years was it's a highly technological country, um, highly digitalized country in many different sectors. And also Israel um, is organized. It has a lengthy bureaucracy in some occasions, but for the most part, extremely organized and digital process for well, a lot of things. Yeah, this is cool to know. I mean, Israel is a famous country in the world but people typically only heard about the conflicts and this kind of stuff, and they don't meet this uh, organized and developed and digital Israel. And interesting to know that. And many, how was for you to learn the, the native language in Israel? Have you learned it or still in process? How is it? Because, I mean, it's, it's a completely different language, different uh, words. I don't imagine how I would learn that. I think for me, it's like always going to be a work in process until um, 50 years from now. It's, uh, it was a really interesting experience. But what made Hebrew fun to learn was the fact that it was completely new. Um, I had to learn a different alphabet system. Similar to the Greek one, but there are some omissions like certain vowel sounds that don't get letter representations. They get punctuation marks instead under the, the letter. So a lot of those things like were extremely interesting for me to put together as a puzzle. And um, today my Hebrew isn't the best, uh, but it is, I think, mild conversational level for the, uh, you know, for the time that I've been here. Um, another thing was just getting used to reading from right to left as well was um, something that I think took me, you know, a few weeks to get over the idea to write it from right to left or read it from right to left. But once you get, you know, the mirror concept of it, it you know, it clicks. Okay, that's cool. And one thing that I want to touch, which is you graduated in civil engineer, you moved to Israel, uh, you started working with content technology, but you also play piano like an expert. How this happened, man? That's a long story, and, uh, and it, it was a difficult road, and I wouldn't call myself like a concert pianist or anything, but I would um, start with how I started with, you know, the passion of, you know, playing the piano. Um, this started, you know, at a very young age, I think I was four or five, when I heard my first Beethoven piece on the radio, and I said, wow, 
that in, that moment impacted me so much. I've been wanting to play for years. Uh, I think I would beg my parents for a piano uh, at some points at the ages of 10 and 11. Uh, something about the instrument just pulled me in. Um, yeah, I was self-taught for a few years as a teenager, did a lot of damage to myself physically with my motor skills um, when it comes to playing the piano because of trying to be self-taught. I had a couple of teachers that helped me, but then it was only when I got to Israel uh, that I met uh, two teachers that have moved me along forward. One prepared me for the conservatory and for the Jerusalem Music Academy, actually. And the other one, my current teacher is a professor, a doctor in a piano performance. Uh, and pianist uh, who is helping me evolve in the instrument today. And right now I'm in the middle of doing my master's degree in the Jerusalem Music Academy. Whoa, congratulations. That's pretty awesome, man. Really awesome. Yeah, and it's like some, oh, sorry. I was going to say also that um, it really, you know, happened after I moved to Israel that I said, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to see, you know, because I like it. I just want to see what I can bring in, in terms of art to the yeah. table. And, and I'm curious now, I don't know if you know that, but how is to live from art in Israel? And piano is typically a classical music. And here in Brazil, I would say it's pretty tough. If you want to be an uh, artist, you need to more typically play pop and funk, some musics that are more disseminated and is more accepted, but classical music and this kind of, uh, I would say it's even harder and it takes more skills. Uh, it's very hard to go and live with, uh, live your life, have your career in this kind of types of music. Is it the same in Israel or classical music is something that is more, uh, there is audience for this kind of thing in Israel? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I believe that classical music def definitely has its crowd. And of course, that crowd is very difficult to find. In my home country, Dominican Republic, I would imagine in Brazil, though I don't know Brazil well enough to say that. Um, in Israel, it has a big crowd, actually. Um, and, but I am a bit detached from the professional economic aspect of being a pianist because I have a full-time job, which I use for my income. The piano for me is actually something that I pursue because I'm just furious to master it. Uh, I love it, yeah. It's something I practice for hours every day when I know that I have a recital coming up. So, um, you know, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a passion more than anything. Yeah, this is awesome. I, used, I learned how to play acoustic guitar. I had a band in my teenagers and I had bands for years. I also love music. Uh, it has a while that, I've not, that I haven't been practicing, but I also am a I love music and I, I love music. I mean, I love to be in a concert. I love to present music to the audience and see people reacting. It's a, just an amazing experience. But man, what's your favorite music, by the way? My favorite music, man. Unfortunately, it's not uh, heard a lot in Brazil, but it's, it's not, it, it's jazz, but RB jazz. I don't know how this would be. I don't know what would be the name in English, but for instance, uh, uh, like Simone, that music, uh, Simone, I forgot her last name, but it's like... Um, Simone, yeah, are you talking about the Brazilian singer um, that sung uh, ballads, I think in the 80s and 90s? No, no, actually no? It's, it's more, 
I would say Americans, they like more of this kind of music. But the music that I like the most are jazz and American jazz and also blues. I love blues and American jazz, but I don't know many of the authors and artists because here in Brazil, it's very difficult to hear that. You need to go to very specific niches. So, if, I mean, it's hard because if you go visit a friend, you never uh, listen to those musics. So I have to learn to like the most popular Brazilian music, which I also like it. That is Sertanejo. It's a very popular music here in Brazil. I confess to you that I'm a little bit already overwhelmed of Sertanejo, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's good. And now I'm, I mean, most of the music that are, they are launching is being more of the same. Then funk, I also like a little bit. Funk is this, I would say, funk and Sertanejo are the most popular types of music, but they are the pop music of Brazil, you know? Uh, I like those, which is, I mean, when you go everywhere, they'll play Sertanejo and funk, but I also like Pagode, which is another Brazilian type of music. Is, is that like, it's pretty similar to samba. Samba is more famous worldwide for people know samba from Brazil, not much, but Pagode is the, I don't I maybe Brazilians will crucify me for that, but I would say it's the more, uh, the new type of samba in Brazil, you know, it's a more pop mm -hmm. samba, I would say. But the music that I like the most is more, uh, is more blues and jazz, but unfortunately. The fusion sounds yeah, like. Yes, I love it. Yeah, I love it. What, what about you? What's your favorite type of music? I, I have a really broad taste and it doesn't, the, the, I guess the most specific I get to when it comes to naming pieces I like is classical music. But for example, I also like grunge. I enjoy a little bit of raccoon, um, new metal, and my wife kind of influenced me to like those types of, um, you know, genres. Um, I also really enjoy, you know, your, your popular music every now and then. For example, if I heard a good funk or sertanejo that I like, um, I definitely would stick in my mind because sertanejo is actually really similar to bachata in the Dominican Republic. I was reading about it the other day, actually, and they have a really similar time signature a similar way to accentuate beats yeah. when it's, yeah. So it's really just, cool. Just one curiosity, for instance, the most popular Sertanejo singer in Brazil, which is Gustavo Lima, uh, his last album, he applied most of the bachata rhythm in all of his musics. And because it's, as you said, it's similar and, and as it's similar, he knew that Brazilians would love the bachata rhythm in his Sertanejo musics. So, and wow. it went pretty well in Brazil. I mean, it's not, it was a great album that he launched it. So it's interesting that you touched this point. Yeah, and I noticed that immediately after I heard Sertanejo, I'm like, there's something there. There's an influence. I don't know where or who influenced what, but there's definitely a vibe that I get where, you know, they're coming from the same mindset. Yes, yeah, probably, yeah, I agree with that. And Manny, I would like to touch now uh, the fact that you work in a global environment. You collaborate, you are from, you live in Israel, but you work with people from Brazil, you work with people from US, from Canada, and different countries. And I'm really curious to know, how is that for you? How is working this kind of environment for you? I think one, it's a really enriching environment. Um, and I've been doing this, I think, long before COVID started, right? Uh, oh. I've, 
yeah, I, I started working remote with, um, you know, partners from the US, um, folks from India, I've, I've had communication with a few countries and this remote environment uh, since 2013, when I, 14, when I joined visually. And um, I loved it because it gave me the opportunity um, to expand my conversation um, in writing, in typing, and also, you know, on, you know, video chats like these, for example, uh, I felt comfortable in the setting. There's something about it that I really liked. So eventually, uh, I got around to, you know, working um, as, uh, you know, in raw content. And so all of a sudden, after the acquisition, I see so many more cultures. I see, you know, Brazilians. I see, um, you know, Canadians I spoke to before, but Mexicans as well. Venezuelans, uh, even people from Europe, from Africa that I got a chance to chat with. And I feel like this is a really enriching experience for me as a, as a professional, because I get to learn a lot of different I, points of view of the world, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, when you work with someone that lives in a different environment, they come with ideas that sometimes you would never expect. And it's and everyone respond to uh, problems because he, when we are working, we are problem solvers. You know, we are always yeah. trying to solve a problem, to create a project, to to build, uh, to, to bring value. We need to solve problems of the world. And it's interesting how different cultures and different people they approach problems differently. It's not that some ways are better than the others; they are just different. And when they connect. I think uh, it's even the, re the end result, it's much better. But also, I would say that also it's not only flowers. I also say that sometimes it can be tricky because you need to learn how to collaborate and live with diversity. Have you ever seen what were the challenges and issues that you faced because we're collaborating with people that that is living in a totally different part of the world than you. Have you ever faced any issues because of that as well? I think um, the, the biggest challenge with regards to collaborating with maybe different cultural mindsets is trying to understand, you know, the points of view and perspectives of the other person on how they think, how they communicate, maybe the way they structure their sentences is different from the way you learned it. And um, those cultural differences, um, are things that, you know, as a global-minded person, we have to persevere to um, attach or to connect the dots and to always be in search for that alignment with other people. So I feel like um, that is one of the most rewarding parts of it. And um, this type of, uh, you know, connecting the dots makes you more open to understanding other people from other contexts as well. Yes. And I, I want to comment what you said, because I 100% agree with you. Sometimes when you are collaborating with people from different parts of the world, they use some sentences and the way they structure their phrase and the words they use is different. And because of that, it's harder for you to understand what they are trying to communicate. Uh, sometimes because they are using some unique words from their region, but, and just for you to have an example, I use Grammarly. Uh, which is a tool that is connected with your email account and they, and they correct your English. So I use that to help me uh, avoid to do mistakes. 
and they send me a report of the words, how many mistakes I did, how I'm compared to the other people. And they tell me, I use more unique words than 99% of other <laughs> people using Grammarly. And why? Because I'm a Brazilian speaking English and I tend to use words I, and create phrases that is somehow a translation of my Brazilian way of thinking. But this difference, so when I communicate to American, I also need to think about how can I structure it in a way that you understand me. So it's a good point that you touch it because that's true. And it's hard sometimes to communicate because of that. Absolutely. And, you know, people from different languages, when they try to enter, for example, a language that is a common language in a company, for example, um, in where I work in raw content, English. Uh, so basically, you see, you know, those different mindsets and those different paradigms of how languages work on their end. And then they say, I'm going to structure the sentence that way, because this is how I speak it in my native language. And um, this is a, I think it's a really interesting observation. And uh a point of um, understanding too, because also the fluent English speaker needs to understand and put it together and say, okay, this is what was meant here. Yes. And one point, because I already faced that in the work, sometimes you are a native speaker, but even native speakers of English from different parts of the world, they use different words. And it's, if you are working in this environment, I think that's a tip for the audience. Be careful of using slangs or words that is only used in your region. Because this, I mean, I'm not saying that you should not use slangs because it's cool. It makes the conversation more informal. It sometimes helps you to connect with the other person. Just be careful sometimes when, it, when you need to make sure the other person you understand and use some kind of word that is only used in your community. So it's harder for the other person to understand. And then she'll feel shy to ask, is my English not good and they sometimes I, I felt shy yeah I won't ask that because I might feel doubt, uh, dumb the people might think that I don't know English so this is some tip that I think always be careful when you are collaborating in a global environment to use words that you be sure that the other person will understand I completely agree with you I think that's a really good point because colloquialisms also um, are interpreted in different ways because they you know, you're used to saying something a certain way and that's a slang. But then when someone takes it at face value and interprets it like word by word, they might mean something that makes no sense to them. And that's the most dangerous thing in a global mindset. As fluent English speakers, think it's our responsibility to jump into conversations and, you know, simplify our communication to make sense in a global context. Yeah, absolutely. And many you touched when you were presenting Israel to our audience about how Israel is digital and is well organized. And I want, I want to know a little bit more about Israel. I have some questions here for you. The first question that I have is, I love to read and I have, uh, and I, and I've studied and I, I heard that Israel has a very hot startup and technology and uh, technology ecosystem. Is that true? Tell me a little bit uh, about that. Absolutely. Um, Israel is one of the strongest, you know, Silicon Valley clones out there. Um, and I didn't work in the tech sector in Israel per se, so I'm not an expert in the Israeli tech economy. But I can definitely say that there are a lot of um, 
Fortune 500 and big companies have their uh, a big office in Israel. You know, one of them being Intel, another being them being Microsoft. They hire a lot of Israeli engineers who um, you know work with creating components for and processors for computers, or you know, work with um, creating algorithms for the next you know AI startup. So there's a lot of talent here because the culture in Israel is very forward thinking when it comes to you know the high tech industry there are a lot of people that are trying to innovate israel is actually very high in the per capita um percentage of how many people you know decide to start a business uh actually and um you see you know anyone can graduate from college and you know sit down and start building an empire for example so yeah. a lot of that happens here and i mean this is a curiosity and maybe it doesn't have any relation but I mean, at least in Brazil, people typically say that Jewish, I know that Israel has a big Jewish community, right? And here in Brazil, we say that most of the Jewish people, they like to be entrepreneurs, they, they want to be rich. Do you believe is there any connection between Israel being this uh, technological environment place because of the Jewish people and this Jewish characteristic people? That's a really good question. And I, I think I can go like deep into it as a person that naturalized as an Israeli. But, you know, in my heart, I'm still not fully 100% Israeli, not because I don't want to be. It's because I feel like there are certain historical conditions that, you know, you meet as an Israeli, especially as an Israeli Jew, um, with regards to, you know, what happened in the past, the Holocaust, all of these events, um, I think, created the state of Israel in one way or another. And it drove a sense of survival, of love for life, of wanting to defend, you know, what there is in Israel. And that is, you know, Jewish life. And um, that, I think that instinct to survive is very strong in a lot of Israelis. And I really think it's a source of inspiration for many. And this is why we see a lot of, um, driven commitment towards, you know, improving things, improving them, um, you know, in physics, improving in um, solid state um, technologies. You know, there are a lot of areas where Israel is actually one of the leading pioneers. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I understand what you are saying, especially because, because of historical events that happened. A lot of Jewish people, they, they, went to other places in the world. One of these places was Brazil. And we have, I believe, a big community of Jewish people here. And most of them, they become entrepreneurs and very often successful entrepreneurs. So in Brazil, you have a lot of successful Jewish entrepreneurs. And I was listening one uh, on a podcast and this guy, he was a uh, Jewish and he visited Israel because he has a connection with the country and because of all the story of Israel. And he went and he was an entrepreneur already, but he went there to learn more of this culture and everything. And when he came to Brazil, he did a criticism to Brazilian entrepreneurs. And I would like, and what was the criticism? He said that because Brazil has a big internal market, because Brazil is a large country, we have uh, more than 200 million people. He said that we, when we create products and we create business, we don't create business that will cross the borders of our country. We just create business for our region. 
And he said that in Israel, people, they build business, not only thinking to their to Israel, they, they open business already with a global mindset. Uh, they create their business already uh, with the idea of expanding this to the whole world. Do you think this, this is true? Absolutely. And I think they have to, because if you look at Israel's population size, the, you know, the, the area, you know, the country actually um, takes in the world, uh, it's a small country. And um, if you go into the mindset of being an entrepreneur and starting a business, staying with a mindset of, you know, only being in Israel, there's only so far, you know, how far you can go. And it's so far you can go. That's the mentality of going global is actually a common one because of that, because of the size of the country and maybe the size of the population, in my opinion. So once, you know, you get started on a business, you start thinking, okay, um, I need to start thinking about Europe. It's close by. I need to start thinking, oh, now it's um, about the United Arab Emirates because now there's a new peace treaty between them. Now, you know, business is expanding towards that direction. So it's always about making connections in the world and creating products that, uh, in my opinion, you know, just trespass those borders. Yeah, this is awesome. I think this is an inspiration for many countries that doesn't have this global mindset. I think this would be a characteristic that Brazilians should uh, adopt more. I think this would make Brazil, because we don't see a lot of Brazilian companies going abroad and you don't see many Bra uh, Brazilian companies, brands that are famous worldwide, right? So this would be a good mindset to have in Brazil. Well, one that comes to mind are the Hawaiian uh, sandals, right? I think they oh, sell them yes. a lot in Israel. Havaianas, yeah, we say Havaianas. Havaianas, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Havaianas. Yes, for sure. It's a solid brand. It's one of the few. Yes, for sure. Good reminder. I don't know. I didn't know you knew Havaianas. Good to know. Yeah, well, they, they sell them all over the place here in Israel. So I see them all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm happy to know that. I'm happy to know that. That's good. good. <laughs> and Manny, now uh, Israel is, has been in the news worldwide for, for a time recently. And I want to have your thoughts on these two very recent news here. The first one is COVID-19 and vaccination. Uh, we all heard that Israel was probably the company that vaccinated its population the fastest. Uh, how was that? I mean, I believe that mostly of the adults in Israel is vaccinated. Is, is that true? People are already going back to the normal life. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the trends are, you know, as they say, uh, we, <laughs> I, I would be surprised if we were under... 90% um, vaccination rate for both vaccines right now. I haven't checked the metrics or the trends lately, but Israel has started to see a sense of normality, I think now for about a month or two. Um, slowly, we've removed masks outdoors. Um, indoor masks are still on because of uh, mu mutation or variants of COVID-19, but that's an extra safe precaution. I think we're, gonna, we're going to get out of it in Israel. And the reason why you know, it was so easy to adopt you know, the vaccine here in this country specifically was because uh, of the healthcare system and the digitalized um, state that it's in today. So right now, um, healthcare is so digitalized through your insurance companies that you can get an appointment to a general doctor through an app. You can get um, an appointment through, with a specialist to an app as, with, a, with your app as well. And um, 
all of your you know prescriptions are through an app as well so everything is extremely you know digitalized where doctors get information they say oh this is a prescription i have to give accepted and you can go to the pharmacy five minutes later and grab your pills or what you need um yeah and and this is what i think from helped Israel, you know, position itself as a company where, or as, as a country where this um, couldn't be tested on, right? And, uh, you know, of course, Pfizer came and had a deal with Israel to, you know, send her, I think that number was 9 million vaccines. I don't remember too well, but it was because Israel had the ability to track every single citizen with regards to how many vaccines they took, when they took it, and log it on a platform or database. So that's, when, that's how just, nice it just was. Just one curiosity. When you take the vaccine, you record the information on app so they know in the app that you already took uh, the first shot, for example? So with the COVID vaccine, I think the way it worked was um, there was an SMS invitation, right? They had a whole queue of who was, you know, supposed to be vaccinated first. Um, you know, it started with the age groups. Uh, then it started with, you know, the younger age groups. And what they did was they queued up your, the SMSs to say, you can now take your vaccination X day. Mine was sometime around March, my first vaccination. Whoa. Yeah. And um, once they had that um, queue, you know, your information, once you get the vaccine, was updated in your insurance, right? In your insurance or medical insurance app. That would also get you, an, you know, access to your certification that you were vaccinated, which is a green card. So you can go around on your phone, waving around your green card to the guards saying, yeah, I can get through this gate because I'm vaccinated. So Whoa. that's it was extremely simple to, as a patient taking the vaccine to go through the process. Yeah, this organization is simply fantastic. Just you know how it's in Brazil. Basically, for instance, now we are vaccinating here in my city people with 35, 36 years old. Uh, so I did... Uh, actually 37, so I, I haven't got my vaccine yet. I'll probably be next in the queue. I think in the next two weeks, I might get my first jab, but you need to get, you need to have a conf, uh, confirmation of your age and that you live in that city. And when you get the jab, they give you a paper showing that you got the vaccine. So it's nothing digital. It's curious to know how many years Israel is advanced compared to us in this aspect. Very interesting. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of countries are facing this challenge because um, you know maybe they're used to processes and paper bureaucracy, which is hard to you know it's hard to digitalize all of that paperwork, yeah. especially in the healthcare industry. Yeah, it's all paper here. It's all paper here yet. We are, I mean, we are improving. So I can already schedule a, a doctor conversation through, through app. But this is very recent in Brazil. And is, I would say it's evolving slowly. But I know that we are more advanced. I was hearing that we are more advanced than other countries. Because for the size right. of Brazil and, and so many and parts of Brazil, a lot of people, they don't have access to internet because of the large country, the social inequality in Brazil is pretty huge. So there are some parts in Brazil that is more developed in this digitalization and other parts. It's just harder because of the circumstances of uh, the region. But it's interesting. And it's also to such have, a big country as well. Yeah, so much, so much yeah. um, space to cover. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, uh, big space to cover. And other aspect, and this one, I'm 
very curious to know. Israel was in the middle of a conflict, uh, I, I think two or three months ago, between Israel and Hamas. It was pretty tough. I mean, you could see rockets going to Israel, and you guys have that, I forget the name, Iron Shield. If it, I don't, I, the Iron that, Dome. Yeah, Iron Dome. That, I mean, we, I just saw photos. But I mean, as a Brazilian, I, I cannot even dream of Brazil being in the middle of a conflict. I, I, I don't know how is the feeling. I cannot imagine. So I would like to hear from you. How is to be in the country in the middle of a conflict when other, when other people are attacking our country and, and things like that? Yeah, and this is um, definitely a really serious, um, you know, topic because it's something that worries you. Um, after 10 years, of course, being in Israel, um, you start saying, oh, here we go again. It's the next one. Um, but it's actually something that kind of rocks your everyday life. You know, it's when you see in the news, this is what's happening and you're thinking, this is probably 10 or 15 kilometers from where I am. And in Jerusalem, you know, Gaza, the Gaza Strip, I think it's what, 50, 60 kilometers from Jerusalem, if I remember correctly. So it's not that it's far, not, man. It's close. It's extreme. It's not that far at all. I think you can get there in about uh, an hour if you need to. And here in Brazil, it's like your neighborhood. I, I need to, <laughs> to visit my mom. It's a one hour in car, you know? <laughs> I know that you have to drive forever to get out of Belo Horizonte. So <laughs> yes, yes. So for, for Brazilian standards, just, just like my, I mean, it's very, very close. Yeah, yeah. And, and something about, you know, the conflict is that when you realize that, you know, these missiles can actually harm you, you know, these um, things or events can happen where you can actually have an accidental missile, not accidental because they target civilians and uh, Hamas, unfortunately, but this can actually land in your apartment or your house. Um, it's a bit nerve wracking. And, you know, I, reminded, I remember the first siren I heard because of conflict back in 2014. Um, and it was a moment where, you know, I have to be honest, I was shaking a bit, right? Incoming missile. I'm actually in the, in the country where some of this is happening in the world. And um, you think, okay, you have to follow protocol. Yet when a missile is incoming in, you know, any city in Israel, you have X amount of time to find a shelter. The apartment I live in has a built-in shelter. Right now, the room I'm in is actually a reinforced concrete, um, you know, with I think it's a really high um, concrete um, force resistance level um, where there is also a metal door that I can close on that window if I wanted to. And I have to do that when a missile is coming, right? So um, this is something that, uh, you know, you have to be aware of what to do, find the safe room and keep it cool, right? And just watch the news as it happens. In 2014, I did see something that um, I thought I'd never see, right? Um, and that is the fact that, you know, I was walking in the street, uh, Chernichovsky Street in um, Jerusalem, and there was a siren at the time I was walking in that 2014 conflict. I realized, okay, I have to find shelter immediately. So the siren started. I went out under, you know, the, in the first parking lot that I can find, and I was under a building. So generally, I thought I was uh, safe, right? After the siren stops, you know, they say that that's where, you know, the rocket impacts in Jerusalem. And I hear at one point a boom. I go outside and uh, I look at the sky. 
and I see a puff of smoke. And I instantly saw the puff of smoke had two trails leading up to it, right? And the first thing that I connected in my mind was the Iron Dome just intercepted a, an incoming Hamas rocket right above my head. I literally saw it maybe half a mile in the sky. Oh my God. It was, it was intense. It was a, one of those moments for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Israel, it's, I mean, all the history, it's a country with a long history, right? And I hope, I hope, I hope you guys get in a resolution. I know it's not that simple. It's a lot of history and yes, but sorry to hear that. I hope you guys come out with a resolution as soon as possible and you guys can Absolutely. live in a more peaceful country because I mean, I know Israel is a great place, so many good things, but I believe this is one of the things that makes you worry about living there for sure, right? I mean, conflict is never good. Absolutely. This is something that crosses my mind all the time. How do I protect my family? My newborn daughter, uh, who's 10 months old. Oh, um, really? I her, yeah, Congratulations. I Thank you. <laughs> I call her newborn because she still feels so small to me, but she's actually almost a year old now. Yeah, I mean, I'm a recent dad as well. You know that, right? Amazing. Wow. And how, yeah, you told me, how old is um, your son yeah. again? My new baby, my baby, not my new name, my only one so far is two months. It's only two months. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling. You realize your life changes, right? Right after you have the kid. And yeah. um, it's the most amazing feeling in the world. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's awesome to see my baby growing every day. Uh, it's just I mean, it's just more love every day, you know, he, he's uh, changing his face and now he's getting more fat because he's, uh, he's, getting, he's growing a lot. So I'm loving, I'm loving. Well, I've been through the two month stage. So if you need any advice, let me know. <laughs> For sure. Because I, I mean, I love to be a dad, but I won't say it's, a, it's easy. It's a lot of work. And especially, I mean, I incentivize all the men because I'm learning a lot to be uh, to be a parent, and it needs it requires a lot of collaboration between you and your partner. And I mean, I'm fortunate that my wife is a great person and she's doing a great job as a mom. But you need, as a dad, I think you need to collaborate a lot because it's much harder. I think it's harder for it's much harder for women for sure. And as a dad, I think we have the obligation to help you know because otherwise just too heavy for only the woman yeah like I, I the way I see raising a kid it's like a collaborative process right um you're both a team you're both trying to make the right decisions to make sure that this kid learns what's good in life right you know what's good and bad what how to guide this baby to you know learn more about life and you know what the world is all about what the world has to show her I feel like um that collaborative process instantly gives you the obligation as a team to, to, you know, separate tasks, see where you can help when, you know, the help is needed, how to, you know, help the other person get rest when it's needed too, and take on more that one day where they're tired, you know, that's yes. kind of like the beautiful thing about being in a, in a marriage and having a baby. Yeah, absolutely. And many, 
uh, I mean, those were my questions about the recent news of Israel, but now I want to touch the Israel lifestyle. How is, what people do in Israel to have fun? How is the lifestyle? What's your lifestyle in Israel? And is that the common lifestyle of other uh, people in Israel? I think um, what's interesting about the my lifestyle and the Israeli lifestyle is that I'm completely different, right? Like I am sheltered in my four walls. I practice piano three to four hours every day. So um, when I get the chance to go out, you know, and, you know, see what other people do, it's a bit of a different thing. People here like going to the beach. People here love being in the sun and the heat. Uh, most Israelis do actually. Um, and they like going out to Tel Aviv. It's a very vibrant culture. And same thing for Jerusalem. There are markets and shuks where people go and do their groceries. Uh, they go to the old city to, you know, pick up some you know, item that they don't have at home. Uh, so it's, I think it's a very vibrant culture, different culture for sure. And I do have friends. I have a lot of Israeli friends, but my lifestyle, because of I'm basically kind of uh, in a room all the time, um, it doesn't lead me to know more until I go out and, you know, look for it, you know? Yeah. Okay. I understand that. And I'm curious, you met your wife playing games, but you still play games. You still like video games or you stop now to focus on piano and work? Uh, so I really like um, video games, actually. When um, I do have the time, I play some. Honestly, this past year, because I've been practicing the amount I've been practicing, I said video games uh, are going to be out of my life maybe for the next foreseeable future. But thankfully, at the beginning of this month, I actually had my recital. Um, and that gave me a break, right? Now I don't have to practice for like a month. And I'm playing a Nintendo Switch where I can. I just beat... Um, it's called uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses. Uh, and it's an, that was an amazing RPG. It was incredible. Oh, cool. That's cool. I, I totally understand you. I'm also uh, passionate about video games. But there are some times that you need to take video games out there for life. Otherwise, you cannot <laughs> work as much. You cannot uh, dedicate time. Uh, for me, for instance, I was playing Apex, which is... Um, battle royale game it's like fortnite uh, yeah it's yeah it's very similar to fortnite and i love it but i had to stop a bit to focus on work work start to get he uh, more heavy and i had to quit a bit but i always go back and i have my seasons play video game it's it's a lot of fun you know especially the part as you mentioned when you have the chance to uh, connect with other people make friends online i also love this part so i I like more online games where I have the chance to uh, connect with other people, where I have to use strategy, where I can compete a little bit because I love some sort of competition. So I'm a, just a, a big fan of games. Yeah, it reminds me of when I, I, used, I got into a game um, in 2015 and 16, maybe a little more after that. It's called Smite. It was a MOBA. You would fight as a um, Greek or... A, Chinese god or you know uh, from different pantheons and you would fight against five other players on the on the map trying to you know complete objectives so uh, I missed that game uh, I haven't played that in a long time but do you play have you ever played MOBAs before uh yes MOBAs you mean the RPG games the MOBAs are kind of like um tower games like you have one team against the other they defeat the set of towers from the other team while the other team actively tries to attack or defend 
So it's kind of like yeah. a game of chess. Yes, just like I believe uh, LoL, and we have I think LoL that is pretty famous, League of Legends, yeah. and also Dota. You know them? I played Dota um, back when I was in college, but I haven't played League of Legends yet. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I played. Um, I think of Age of Empires. I think it's just like that. You know Age of Empires? I loved, I used to love that game. I, I can't wait until they release a brand new one. Yeah, so Age of Empires like Mobit, I'm understanding correctly. I think it's more, Age of Empires is more like a, a strategy game where you have to like build slowly. I, I don't, MOBA's because the MOBA has the theme of you have a map and then you have three lanes. And in those three lanes, the teams attack each other and they okay. always have to fight the same infrastructure to get to the okay. final objective, which is to defeat a Titan. But in Age of Empires, as you know, because yeah, you, you also Empires, the game. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, I understood you. You can build however you want, basically, in Age of the yes. Empires. Yeah, you are right. So, no, to be honest with you, I, I've seen games like that. I, I think I tried, but I never played for a time that I was, that I played. So, no, the game that I was the most addicted to was Chibia. I don't know if this is, if, if you know this game, but it was pretty strong in Brazil. It, we have a lot of people from Polony when we are when I was playing Chibia. And also RF Online, RF Online, which is a Korean game. This was my favorite of my all life. And last Apex, which I loved as well. Amazing. I, I never heard of Tibia or the EF game, um, but are they which platform? Are they on Switch or mobile? RF Online, they are, I played them on my computer, so they are not like for Nintendo Switch, and they are RPG games, so you are a character, and then you are, you are just updating your, improving your levels, and building your uh, weapons, and stuff like that, and then you have your race, and you need to protect, and you go into wars with your clan, and I mean, those were, I loved them, I loved them a lot. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I miss those type of games for sure. <laughs> for sure. But Manny, we are getting to the end here. And I have some questions that I ask all the guests that I have in 1GC. Can I ask you those questions? Yeah, please go ahead. Okay. Yes. My first question here. What is your favorite dish of Israel? That's a tough one because there are dishes from different... Um, I think from different ethnicities inside of Israel. For example, there's jachnun. I really love jachnun, and it's a dough that's very thin that's wrapped around itself. You cook it with an egg next to it, something for like a whole night. And um, you add some sugar, some salt to it, I think before the cooking process, the baking process. And it's one of the, you know, the yummiest things I've ever had in my life. So that's probably taking my number one spot, but a close second is falafel. I absolutely love falafel with hummus. Yeah, falafel, I think I tried already. I need to check if it's what I'm thinking. But I think this is, I think this is, we have this in Brazil. Uh, when you go to restaurants with uh, foreign dishes. And as you are a Dominican Republican, uh, you, you was born there. I want to know a dish from Dominican Republic that is your favorite. You have some? Yeah, it's hard because I love a lot of Dominican dishes. But if I had to pick one, I think it would be pastelón de plátano maduro. And that is a sweet yellow ripe plantain that is cooked with, um, you know, a layer of ground beef in the middle 
and uh, some ch um, gouda cheese on top that you put in the oven. And it's kind of like a, like a casserole type thing. So you cut it into squares and you eat it maybe with rice or something like that. More carbs, why not? Yeah. Very interesting. I would check that. I've never heard about it. And now a foreign dish, your favorite foreign dish. My favorite foreign dish? Huh. I think it's going to have to be those um, curry stews, right? From Thailand. I really enjoy uh, a good red curry stew with um, potatoes or chicken or beef, um, green curry as well, so uh, or yellow curry. So I really enjoy that palate a lot. Well, that's interesting. You, you, I mean, I think there's a curiosity for the word curry is not so popular in Brazil, at least. Not, I mean, Brazil is large, so maybe, maybe it's popular somewhere else. But at least where I live and the places I visit, curry is not that popular. I love curry. I mean, especially, I think Indians, they use a lot of curry in their food. Yeah. And I like a lot. But here in Brazil, it's not that popular. But just a curiosity for our audience. And Manny, the second question. And when you were leaving your college, school, uh, what was your first ideal salary in your mind? That's hard to, to imagine because I came out of school not knowing what was going to happen. You know, it's, I started looking for a job. Um, I got in as a, as a civil engineer to, for a small construction company making a nine-story building. So I helped build that building. Uh, but actually, my salary was very low. Uh, but I was hoping that one day I would um, have a higher salary and um, move up and eventually maybe leave the Dominican Republic to a place where I can have more income, you know? And I didn't expect much inside of Dominican Republic. And that's sad because, you know, one would say, oh, you stopped believing in your country. You stopped believing in what you can do there. But when I saw the situation on a global context, I said, you know, I want a better path, right? A, a better path where I can move forward. But there are a lot of people in Dominican Republic that can do it, right? They can be successful and be entrepreneurs inside of that sphere. And that's extremely difficult to do. But um, I felt maybe it's time to explore the world a bit in a sense. Yeah, that's true, man. I mean, the world is not restricted to where you were born. The world is for everyone. And you see a lot of people that go to other places and become entrepreneurs in other areas. And this is the world especially when we accept that, I think the life is much better. It's not that we don't like the place that we were born or something like that. I, I liked your vision. The third question then, Manny, if you, go, if you could go work for one year in any other country in the world, where would you go? If I were to work one year, I, I think I'm really thinking about this for a while. I would be very tempted to go to Japan. Um, yeah, Japan. Yeah. yeah and, and not just Tokyo. I want to go to the countryside and work on my laptop for, you know, months, right? And just see something, a, a nice view, uh, cherry blossoms and, um, you know, when it's the season. Um, I, I know Japan only through, you know, movies and maybe anime and um, reading things about it. But uh, it's always a country that I've wanted to experience firsthand. Yeah, I also love Japan. I'm the kind of guy that goes on YouTube and search Japan and like to see videos, people, how is lifestyle in Japan? Because I think it's a fascinating country. So 
so different from Brazil with an interesting culture and interesting lifestyle. I, I think I would, I, Japan is on my list as well. And what if you had to go and live forever? And you cannot pick your home country, okay? If I cannot pick my home country, where would I live forever? Like which country you say? Yeah. I haven't thought of that. Like I haven't thought of what my ideal destination is. I always think that the destination will change for me. But if I had to choose absolutely one country, one temptation for me would be Peru, the Cusco Valley. Okay. okay. I fell in love with it um, in a trip in 2014. And I feel like that area is just marvelous as to how beautiful it is. Good. I mean, it's first time Peru shows up in this show. Good. Very good. And what, what's, the, what's the country that you have the most curiosity to meet in your life? The country that I have the most curiosity to meet, I think um, I would love to explore China one day um, and look at the sceneries. I, I, I see the pictures sometimes of these very tall cliffs with forestation on top of them. And I think that's extremely epic. Like I, I would love to see what that's like in person. So I agree with you. I agree. I see photos of that cities in China with that huge um, constructions. And I see how those, how those buildings, they stay up, you know? <laughs> yeah. I have the same curiosity, man. We should, we should go on a trip uh, to no other countries together. <laughs> Heck yeah, that, that would be an idea. I'm down. <laughs> yeah, good. And any book or movie, uh, something that you would recommend to our audience? I think from a professional perspective, one book that really impacted me was Start With The Why by Simon Sinek. That okay. book really changed the way I look at um, business in general and why you know, people do things um, to get a profit or to um, serve a need in the market. That, why that reason really drove me to understand, okay, you know, this is the truth of how business should be run. And I'm no expert in business, but I feel like he touched on a core human logic there that I, I think all of us uh, should understand and read. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I know Simon's neck. I have seen many videos of him. I have one of his books that I bought, I haven't read yet, but he's for sure a great author. Uh, I, will, I will read this book for sure because I also am interested on that. And last question, Manny, any company from Israel that is a reference for you that you admire? I think um, there are a lot of companies that um, have made it big in Israel. One example is Waze, right? Waze started oh, here locally. Really? Yeah. I didn't know they were. Israeli company. Yeah, they are an Israeli company. They started um, here in Israel. I don't know much of the backstory of Waze, but eventually they got acquired by Google for a very large sum. So that story very much fascinates me with regards to how you know they came from here and they grew that, that fast. Um, another um, company that I look up to actually is called Mobileye. Mobileye is um, a basically a car sensor technology where they use radar. I think it's radar technology to sense, you know, the distance between a, one car and another and warn the driver when, you know, a collision is imminent. So I think they use a combination of radar and visual technology. I'm not quite sure. Um, but this system has been so successful that they were also acquired, I think, um, five to six years ago or something like that. And 
I think right now they're actually a very big global company, Mobileye. Oh, that's awesome. That This company, I confess, I didn't know what Waze, I mean, I don't know how it would be my life <laughs> without that here in Brazil. We have we, we have Google Maps, but I I my I particularly prefer Waze. I mean it's very useful. It's very useful. Yeah, and it's insane to me to think that you know a lot of people in Israel were using Waze before it became big. I think two years before it became big for a while. Yeah, that's cool. That's very interesting. And well, Manny, we got to the end here. Uh, so I would like to thank you so much for your participation to all of the knowledge that you share with us. It was very interesting to know more about you, about Israel, about the cultural lifestyle. So for the, our audience, remember, if you like this content, remember to subscribe to our podcast, to our YouTube channel. And many, thank you. You are always welcoming one GC, man. Thank you, Rafael. It was a pleasure to speak with you today on this podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.